I was sat in a coffee shop the other week. I was working. And there was a healthy buzz of chatter going on around me. But I was in my own world, focused and thinking. And as I sat there, focusing on the little screen in front of me, something caught my eye. One of the, of the barristers, baristas, um, not the lawyer, yeah, was walking around handing out little short-sized cups of some new coffee flavor that they were trying to promote. And I watched as she'd approach one individual, they'd have their little exchange, and then she would walk off, and then the customer would give the cup a little sniff, and then excitedly try the coffee. And I could see the smile on the person's face as they tried the coffee because it made them happy, because it was free. But the coffee shop was not trying to do them a favor. They weren't giving away freebies for the sake of being nice. They weren't hoping to satisfy that person's caffeine needs with that one little cup of coffee. What they were trying to do was to give them a taste, to create in them a longing for something more. That little cup of coffee pointed to a greater reality. That little cup of coffee showed that a greater cup of coffee existed. And that larger cup would be just as amazing and tasty as that little cup, only there would be much, much more of it. That little cup of coffee was an invitation to an adventure, to a journey of taste and smell. And of course, not everyone who tried the little cup wanted to buy the big cup, But that's okay, because that's why the little cup was offered, to help people make an informed decision. Let's turn to John chapter 6, verse 25. John chapter 6, verse 25. John chapter 6, starting at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. We can see straight away that we're in the middle of something. We're in the middle of a story. Someone has been looking for Jesus and they found him on the other side of the sea. So let's find out what's been happening so far. At the start of chapter 6 of John's Gospel, we find out that Jesus has gathered around himself quite a following. And the reason for this following, for this crowd, is discovered in chapters 4 and 5. Jesus has healed various people, and folks had seen him do this. So as you can imagine, uh, they probably went home and told their friends and family, and so a crowd started to gather. They were all curious, what is Jesus going to do next? And these stories of the miracles were going viral, and Jesus' fame was spreading. 
However, at the same time that there were many who were enthralled by him and his deeds, there were others who were out to kill him because he had claimed that he was equal with God. This was the crowd. So Jesus leaves the crowds, the lovers and the haters, and in chapter 6, verse 1, he crosses the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. And I imagine he did this because he was tired and he needed a break. But a crowd is following him along the shore. And the reason why, as we read in chapter 6, verse 2, is because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, it seems that Jesus is actually rather desperate for some time away from the crowd. Because in verse 3 of chapter 6, we read that he hikes up the mountain hoping to lose the crowd and to have some time alone with his his disciples. But just as he's about to have a moment's respite, he realizes that the crowd will not actually take no for an answer. Jesus finds himself again surrounded by a crowd of excited individuals. And maybe kudos to them, because of their perseverance, they get to see an amazing miracle, which is kind of what they wanted all along. You see, they were so intent on seeing Jesus do something cool that they'd forgotten minor details like, I don't know, bringing lunch. So by the time they were at the top of the mountain, it was late and they were hungry and they were miles from the nearest Tim Hortons or Wendy's. And so Jesus took pity on them and he caused a little lunch to be miraculously multiplied into a feast of fish and bread. This whipped up the crowd into an even greater frenzy, and they began to shout out, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, being rather astute, sees that they want to force him to become king. And so Jesus legs it again further up into the mountain. He probably snagged some of the leftover fish and bread on his way out to keep his energy up for his next climb. And so the disciples are left alone with this mob who I guess started to quieten down. So when evening came, in verse 16 of chapter 6, the disciples went back down the mountain to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where they got into a boat and headed back across the lake. After they'd rowed about three or four miles against the wind, Jesus joins them in the boat, and in another miracle, he beams them over to the other side, just like that. One moment, there was waves and seasickness, and the next instant, they were tied up to land at the exact place where they wanted to go, which is pretty amazing. Meanwhile, change scene. The crowd is up on the mountainside. They watched the disciples leave, head down the shore, and take a boat across. Then they watched this storm sweep across the lake there below them and swallow up the disciples. And so the night passed. And in the morning, the crowd who was still on the other side of the Sea of Tiberias hiked down to the seashore and thumbed a ride with some boats that were in the area heading across the lake towards Capernaum. They were trying to find Jesus. And upon reaching land, they found him, which shocked them. Remember that that the day before, they'd seen Jesus leave, go off into the mountains, 
and then later they'd seen the disciples leave and take a boat across the lake. So it must have been a real surprise for them to find Jesus and the disciples together in Capernaum. Hence their question, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 25. But Jesus did not answer their question. Because how they found him is not important to Jesus. He wants to explain why they were looking for him in the first place. He unveiled their motives. These people have been tracking Jesus all the way around Lake Tiberias. They've been sleeping on a mountainside overnight. They've Ubered their way from one side of the lake over to the other side of the lake, and then they stumble into Capernaum, unshowered and disheveled, only to find Jesus already there. Verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. But what's Jesus saying here? First of all, he's saying, you followed me all this way. You went through all this stuff in order to find me, and now you found me. So they found Jesus, but here's the thing. The Jesus that they found is not the Son of God, at least not in their eyes, because in verse 14, we read that Jesus to them was a prophet. And in verse 15, it says they wanted to make him king by force. And then in verse 2 of chapter 6, it says a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. So to them, he was a miracle worker, he was a prophet, and he could be king. But he's not God, and he's not Messiah. But at least they're kind of on the right track. But somewhere along the way, they lost their original motive And Jesus, the miracle maker, became Jesus, the filler of bellies. They were seeking Jesus, but they were seeking the wrong Jesus. And invariably, if we seek the wrong Jesus, that's the Jesus we find. You are seeking me, he says, because you ate your fill of the loaves. Because what started off with wonder and possibility and astonishment turned into something more mundane. Think about it. Someone who views Jesus as a miracle worker, as a prophet, and as royalty means that it's not too much of a jump for them to view Jesus as God. Like I said, they're on the right track, but they're not there yet, but they are heading in the right direction. Imagine there's someone you know that's done some pretty crazy stuff. Unexplainable things happen when they're around. They're a a miracle worker. Then they say some incredible stuff that leaves you with no option but to consider them to be a prophet. And so you start thinking, man, this country would be so much better if they were in charge. These are some profound thoughts to be thinking about someone Because wrapped up in these thoughts is the acknowledgement that God is doing something through them. In fact, maybe this person even is God. And so I can imagine the conversations on the hillside after the feeding of the 5,000, as the crowds crowds gathered to keep warm through the night, as they watched this storm sweep over the lake below them. The theories that they came up with must have been amazing. Who is Jesus? But then the morning comes. 
They wake up on the mountainside cold and hungry, probably wet and stiff and sore, and all they can think of is food. Then their minds go back to the miracle that happened the day before. Maybe they scrounge the scraps of bread and fish that were left over, and the only thought in their head at that moment in time was, I'm really, really hungry. And then the minds go to Jesus, the one who made the hunger go away. And so they're no longer thinking of Jesus as the prophet or the miracle maker or the potential king. Instead, Jesus has become the attendant at a drive through window. Someone who has a role, someone who has a purpose, and we're quite happy if he remains anonymous. There's no need for chit-chat. Just hold out the hand and receive the burger and fries. Jesus has gone from being a king worth serving to the one who serves their needs. Fantastic Jesus has become fast food Jesus. The cries of lead me have turned to feed me. Jesus is no longer the beginning and the end. Instead, he's a means to an end. So, what about you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he the one to whom you say, where you go, I go, lead me anywhere? Or is he the one to whom you say, just make me comfortable, just take care of my needs? In your prayer life, how often are you asking God for opportunities to lead you out of your comfort zone, anything to honor him? Or how often are you simply asking God to keep the status quo? On the mountaintop of miracles, your faith is strong. In fact, you wish you could take Jesus by force and make everyone bow before him as the king of kings. That's how much you believe in him. Yet in the cold morning light, with your aches and pains, you don't care so much about Jesus being prophet or king or miracle maker, as long as he takes away your hunger or your loneliness, as long as he gets rid of your debt or gets your child into the right sports program. Sometimes our desire for Jesus to fix things can become so all-consuming that we no longer see Jesus. We only see a fixer of things. Jesus is no longer the center of your universe. Your needs are, you are, which effectively makes you a false god in your own life. Your relationship with Jesus has been replaced by a contract, a quid pro quo. You say, look, I came all this way, now just do me a solid and fill me up. But that's not who Jesus is. He's not our heavenly petrol station where we pull up and fill up so that we can keep going until the next time the empty light starts flashing. He's not the granter of our wishes. He's the receiver of our worship. He's God. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Just a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus said similar words to the woman at the well in Samaria. In John 4, verse 13, he says this, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is taking this physical need that the crowd is feeling 
and he's using it to highlight the spiritual need that they're feeling. He's kind of saying to them, look, you traveled up a mountain, down a mountain, across a big lake to get your belly filled, but I have something far, far better for you. The miracle up on top of the mountain was this little shot glass of coffee. Now Jesus wants to offer them the venti cup. If you had a heap of money in the bank and you were in the marketplace for a piece of art, what would you invest in? A beautiful wood and metal sculpture or a good-looking ice sculpture? Well, if you wanted it to last beyond winter, you would invest in a sculpture made of wood and metal because wood and metal lasts, whereas ice melts. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is saying, don't let your, your, your lives be run by your physical desires, because this will never satisfy. Instead, desire spiritual food that lasts. If you want a savior who merely meets your temporary needs, he will never satisfy you. It's like asking a massage therapist to scratch your back when they're offering you a week at an all-inclusive spa. That itch is real. It's a real need. But something far better is on offer. There's a, a video on YouTube about this kid who sat at a table and they have a marshmallow um, on the table. And, and the person says to them, if you wait until I come back, I'll give you another marshmallow. But if you eat the marshmallow, then there won't be a second marshmallow. So you either wait and get two marshmallows or you indulge your desires right there and you just have the one marshmallow. And that's really what's happening here is that Jesus is saying that he has something if they're willing to wait and invest and not just have their immediate needs met. He's got something far more wonderful on offer. And we find out in verse 27 that this food that endures to internal life will be given by the Son. And furthermore, we discover that God the Father has given his unique stamp of approval to his Son because this is God's plan, that this food comes from Jesus. And if we carry on reading through this chapter, we don't just find out, or we find out that this food doesn't just come from Jesus. But it is Jesus himself. He is giving himself. Just as he offered himself as the living water to the Samaritan woman, so here he's offering himself as the living bread to these crowds. And after explaining that he's, he's better than the manna that God gave to the Israelites in the desert, Jesus says in chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus says, I am the true manna that comes from heaven. Because manna could only satisfy for a day after which it spoiled. But the bread that Jesus offers will never get moldy and will never spoil. And so the conversation goes back and forth between Jesus and the crowd. Back and forth. They're asking for a breakfast sandwich. He's offering so much more. And here's the thing. By our current standards, Jesus was not a very good evangelist. At least it appears that way. Because Jesus starts off talking about physical bread, 
and heavenly bread and physical hunger and, and spiritual hunger. And that's great. It's a clear spiritual picture. And the crowd are listening and they're open. But then by verse 54, he's saying, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, verse 56, and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is pretty extreme stuff. The, and the crowd couldn't handle this and they left. In the space of less than 24 hours, Jesus went from being hailed as a prophet, king, and miracle worker to watching as droves of people leave. And not just the crowds, but his disciples as well. And he kind of only had himself to blame because he was intentionally using extreme language to describe this spiritual transaction. He's, he's talking about feeding on Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood, but he's doing this on purpose. He's using this language intentionally, and I believe he's using these words to sift the crowd, to separate the true seekers from the freebie hunters. Because verse 60 records, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Which if you translated that into modern language, it would probably, what the heck did he just say? And then in verse 66, it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This crowd who were ready to crown him the day before were now walking away back to their lives, back to their homes. They had abandoned their journey with Jesus. But I think it's important to note that no one who walked away said, hey, Jesus, can you maybe explain what you mean by this whole eating your body and drinking your blood thing? Are you actually talking about us ingesting you? They just heard the words at face value and left. Of course, Jesus wasn't talking about physically eating him. He was talking about a spiritual truth without which we cannot be saved, that Jesus is our source of life, our nutrition, just as eating food brings life to a physically starving man, so consuming Jesus brings life to a spiritually starving world. Jesus is in essence saying, look, I am life. I am the only one who can bring you to life, who can cause your heart to beat, who can raise you from the grave. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks, on my drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now, this language in verse 56 should remind us of another verse in John 15 verse 4 where Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear truth by its, uh, fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then John 15 verse 9 says this, abide in my love. And John 15 verse 11 says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So this spiritual feeding on Christ's flesh and drinking his blood is about abiding in his love. It's about bearing fruit. It's about living lives of complete joy, abiding in Christ. It's not a gruesome image. It's an image of joy and beauty and really depending on him. 
But this is the nature of, fo- of following Christ. From the outside, it looks strange and foreign, but with the eyes of faith, it can become the most beautiful and spectacular relationship. And it's important that we understand this as we go back to verse 28 and 29, where it says this. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The life of following Jesus is a life of faith. In verse 27, Jesus told the crowd, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that leads to eternal life. And immediately the crowd jump on this word, work, and so they ask, what must we do to be doing the work of God? They think it's about rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty. They think it's about them doing their bit. It's about earning eternal life. But Jesus answers them with a beautiful sentence that sums up the gospel. Verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work is to believe. The work is faith. The work is to believe in the one whom God has sent, to believe in Jesus. And so we take into ourselves, when we believe, we take into ourselves the work that Jesus completed on the cross, and this brings life. Just as ingesting food brings life and energy, We absorb the finished work of Christ's atoning sacrifice into our very bloodstream. Christ's death becomes our death. Christ's life becomes our life. Spiritually, it becomes who we are on a molecular level. Our identity is now wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus becomes the fuel that drives our car. Jesus becomes the charger cable that brings power. We are dead in the water without Jesus. We cannot move one foot without his resurrection power coursing through our veins. All we have without Jesus is the ability to go from one meal to the next. Satisfying our carnal desires. But Jesus tells us that we're more than the sum of our bones and sinew and cells and senses. We are more than this. We are spiritual beings who need spiritual food to move us from spiritual death into spiritual life. This is what Jesus was trying to show the crowd through the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. They could not feed themselves. Only he could satisfy their physical hunger. But Jesus wanted them to see beyond this miracle to understand that only he could satisfy their spiritual hunger. You would think that he would have given these people a break. They've just chased him up and down mountains and across lakes. And surely this means that they are his disciples. After all, they've been following him. And isn't that what a disciple is? Someone who follows Jesus? But Jesus knows their hearts. He knows the drawing power of a free lunch. He knows that we can come to him, asking him to meet our deepest felt need, but still fall short of saving faith. In this account, we see that Jesus' sole intention is to lead people to a place of choice. 
He's weeding out the spectacle seekers or the easy believers. He's trying to get people to see their own true motives. He wants people to approach him as Lord and Savior, not merely as a sandwich artist. He works a miracle on the hillside to show them his power, but he rejects any attempts of the crowd to form him into a savior of their choosing. He knows that he is God and he will not submit to society's expectation of him. Jesus did not come to offer us a band-aid. He came to, to give us a blood transfusion. He offered his own lifeblood to replace our contaminated blood. Jesus did not come to earth to offer us a nose job to make us feel better about ourselves by offering us some pro bono cosmetic surgery. He came to offer us a whole body transplant, a soul transplant, to enable us to exchange our brokenness and sin and shame and filth for his beauty and holiness and perfection. This is the nuts and bolts of the exchange being offered. This is the gospel and this is the message of the cross. Jesus does not want to be our free lunch. He wants to be our first love. He doesn't want to just meet our needs. He wants to make us new. He doesn't just want to edit our grammatical um, mistakes. He wants to create for us a whole new story, writing himself into every sentence. He wants an army of disciples who hear the hard sayings, but who know the heart of the Savior behind the hard sayings. He doesn't want admirers. He wants addicts. He doesn't want Jesus fans. He wants Jesus freaks. He doesn't want mates. He wants martyrs. He doesn't want fair-weather friends. He wants faithful followers. Jesus is seeking an army of people who understand grace, who understand that what they've been given is so much better than a free meal, that what they've been given is redemption, is rescue, is is forgiveness, is total absolution. What they've been given is a brand new life. John 6, 67, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the the word of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what he wants, is people to say to him, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let me close in prayer. And what I would offer is that if you're someone who's been seeking Jesus as a bringer of free lunches rather than the one that can free your, your life, let him know now. There were these people that, that chased him over lakes and mountains, but they got it wrong. And in the end, they, 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 they walked away. So effort and sincerity isn't enough. You could be seeking the wrong Jesus even now. So let's hear what the, what the true Jesus says. Come, everyone who thirsts, and I'll ask the worship band to come up.
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This grace is free. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. So those who, are, those, those who know that Christ is not yet theirs, I ask that you respond. Those who've maybe lost their way and have started to see Jesus as, as the meter of their, of their physical needs, their immediate needs, but, not, but they've lost that reality that he's Lord and Savior. I'd, I'd invite you in this song to respond.